Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. Good to be with you all. Looking at the clock, I mean, I've got like 50 minutes to preach here this morning. We're just cruising through this service. Aren't you excited about that? Um, happy post-spring break. And um, for those that picked Villanova to be to win your tournament bracket, we'll have special prayer in my office after the service for your bracket. Sorry about that. As you may know, or if you're joining us for the first time, we have been in the book of Hebrews and will be um, uh, for, for a while, which is good. It allows us the ability to, to take time with a book, to look at it, to, to understand its context, and um, to not pick topics that would be of our own choosing, but rather have Scripture pick, the, pick those topics. But one of the things that we've been saying about doing a study like this, and, and really when you approach Scripture in general, is that there are many barriers, and one of the barriers that we come to in this book is this cultural barrier, specifically with uh, this thing, this person, this, this, this position called the high priest or the sacrificial system. Um, and so we, we have this distance because uh, we don't practice this anymore. But this was a practice put in place in the Old Testament. Um, the idea of a priest atoning for sin was more real to these people than it is for us today. As we enter chapter 5, this is at least the fourth time that we've heard the words high priest. So I actually want us to look a little further this morning and a lot of what is coming down the road to us in Hebrews at what this high priest really is, what he does. Um, This morning we'll be looking specifically at the act of atonement by the high priest on the day of atonement, which is talked about here in this text briefly. But we need to do this so that we can understand just what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. Which is something that we've been saying already, that that he is our great high priest. And we'll hear it again in our text this morning. But we need to look at this position and what this position really did so that we can understand what it means for Jesus to be this for us. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. I'll read 1 to 10, but we're really focusing on verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your truth and your word. And we pray now that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. 
as many of you know by now, or if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my wife and I have four girls under seven. And so what that means for us, and especially reflecting over spring break, we stayed and enjoyed Fort Worth. Uh, that means it's really loud in our house, and, uh, but we have a lot of fun. And you know, raising one child is difficult enough. I, 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 I totally get that. Um, but like most parents, there's a certain time of the day um, that you think would be the easiest. You think that this would be uh, just, okay, no matter what's going on throughout the rest of the day, we should be able to do this and do this well. But it's actually not. It's actually the worst part of the day. And this is a, a time of the day that we call dinner time at our house. At dinner time, what, what's, what's, what's happened leading up to all this and what really dinner time is about, um, most of the time it's Ada because she's an amazing cook, has, has labored and made a, a wonderful meal for her family. Okay? Uh, we desire, or we're trying to teach our children, I should say, to be thankful for this meal. That's, that's one other thing we're trying to do. We're trying to teach our children, one in particular, that you don't have to say everything that's going on in your mind at the dinner table. Um, perhaps most important, dinner time at the Moors is when we all sit down as a family and we eat together. Okay, There's a togetherness component here. We share stories of the day. You know, at the very least, we just try to give each other the, the respect that human beings should be given. That's really what we're just shooting for here. Again, um, you would think that this would be the easiest part the easiest thing in the world to do, but it, it's not. And uh, you, know, you show up, you sit down, you eat, you say thank you, and you wait until everyone's done, and then you can leave. What's so hard about that? <laughs> Apparently, it's the hardest part of the day, and we are clearly asking too much of our kids, this is Ada and I, because it never fails. It never fails, for one, for someone to come in and say that nobody likes what's being made. Nobody likes the food. No one will sit down. I mean, just sit down and be still. Just sit. No one will do that. No one will do that. Can't get anybody to do that. No one ever says thank you. Um, can't count on that for anything. And, um, and everyone constantly says what they're thinking all the time. So it creates this wonderful time of noise. And now Aiden and I have locked ourselves in the bathroom just to be away from them. But not really. <laughs> But some, some, you know, in, in these intense moments, some don't even make it to the table. Some just break down and begin to lay on the kitchen floor and cry and say, I hate this food. Why did you make it? And, you know, inevitably, inevitably this gets to a point where someone is asked to leave and is sent to their room for time out, which brings in another wave of tantrum. Well, why? What did I do? This is not this is not my fault. This is unfair. This is your fault because you you made this meal and caused me to do this. Like, end quote. That is a real quote from my kitchen table. I'm not making this up. Now we don't always handle this situation well, but when we do, <laughs> I could say something else after that statement. It goes something like this: Please go to your room. Please calm down, and you can come and be with us when you're ready to be a part of the family again. Okay, Go to your room, calm down, and you're welcome to come out of that room when you're ready to come sit at the table, be quiet, eat, say thank you. 
a.k.a. be a part of this family again. Most of the time, this is purely a selfish move on Ada and I's part. Because like I said, we're just, everybody's whining, we're tired of it. And we really are hoping that at some point, they're all just going to be sent to their room so that we can have quiet <laughs> and eat our dinner. But um, you know, we realize that there's, there's a job here. But what we're trying to say to them, and this is kind of you know, the point of this, what we're trying to say to them is that in, those, in this moment at least, the goal of being a family, the goal of dinner time is to be a family, is to be together, right? It's to be together. It's to celebrate that. It's to, it's to live together. It's to share the same roof. It's to respect each other. It's to do all those things that we would call being a family. Uh, it, it's, it's saying thank you. It's saying I'm sorry. It's saying um, all these things because we love one another. But when being together, when this idea of, of, of trying to have a family unit here for us is disrupted, we want them to actually feel geographically or physically in that sense what their words and their actions uh, are saying emotionally and even spiritually. And that is that their disobedience has caused separation. That the tantrum has caused a separation from what the family is doing and what you're doing over here on the floor, kicking and screaming. And we want them to feel that physically. So we send them off to their room where hopefully they'll come to the conclusion that they don't like the physical representation of what their actions have done. And they'll want to what? Come and be a part of the family again. That they'll want to be with us at the table, eating, enjoying life. Being with the people in this world that love them more than anybody else in this world. As ironic as that is to say. Okay. When the Bible talks about high priests, when the Bible talks about atonement, sacrifices, blood, okay? All these things that for the most part are very, very distant, distant from us. I want you to think about the word separation. And I want you to think about the problem that the Bible says that we are all in or that we all have is that we are literally cut off or separated from God because of sin. We are separated from him from him and we are no longer a part of his family. But God, right, but God being rich in his mercy, loves us way too much to leave us in that state. And so what does he do? And the Old Testament gives us this picture. He creates the system. He creates this system of, of priests, this sacrificial system, so that we might what? Be, be, be a family again. So that we might come back together and be one. Be united. And the job of the high priest that we're going to talk about this morning is God's way of making and restoring a rebellious people who are separated from him of making them family again. Because unlike my children at times, there is no amount of time out, as it were, that will cause you and myself to realize, oh, I want to go and be a part of God's family. And so he has to come get us. He has to come get us. He has to make a way for us to come to him. And as it turns out, the only way for this to happen is actually at great cost to himself. And I want us to see this through the actions of the high priest this morning. This could be a very boring topic, but I'm going to give it, I'm going to risk it for the sake of what it is that we gain by visualizing and seeing something that some of us had never visualized and seen before. Three things on your outline that we're going to look at that have to do with the high priest on the day of atonement. That's what we're going to look at that Aaron, who the high priest would be, 
um, would be doing. Uh, Those three things are this, clothing, cleansing, and removing. So if you're into taking notes, clothing, cleansing, and removing. The first of these is clothing. As we have been saying throughout this series, the job of the high priest is to represent the people before God and God before the people. This was his duty, the representation. And in the sacrificial system, priests were first, what, chosen among the people, as we even read here in Hebrews. Chosen among the people. They didn't appoint themselves. This was a calling. Second, their primary job was to offer gifts and sacrifices. It's both ends of the spectrum uh, of, of bringing both gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of God, on behalf of the people. To what? To bring them together, to end the separation. So once a year on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this was... Uh, where all of Israel's sins could actually be atoned for. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a special day, to say it mildly. And you'll see why that is true here in a second. But he would reconcile two parties to himself who were separated, God and Israel, and he would bring them together. And no one in here, I'm guessing, has probably ever seen what the high priest was dressed up as. I would encourage you to Google it after the service and look at this. The visual is is important. If he were to come walking through these doors right now, he would be both terrifying and awesome at the same time in what he was dressed up in. Right? And if, and if the light were to hit him right, he would just reflect and, and glow like this window is behind me at times when the window or when the sun comes in uh, correctly and hits it. But he would have this special outfit, and there are really uh, these three articles of the outfit that I want to highlight for you. Yes, we're going to talk about the high priest and his clothes today. So get ready. The first was this. On the Day of Atonement, when he would go in and make this special offering for the atonement of all, all their sins, is he would wear a thing called an ephod, which is really an apron. If you've ever done any cooking, you put an apron on and you tie it around your waist. But this ephod had two special things on it. Okay, it had two stones that were set in gold. They were onyx stones that, that, that specifically rested on the shoulders of the high priest. And with, with the stones being set in gold, it was, there was a sense of a weightiness there. And on each of the stones had, had six tribes on one side and, and six on the other. Okay, this was the ephod. That's the first piece of clothing. The second piece of clothing was the breastplate. This came essentially over the ephod and it was connected by this gold chain and it came across his chest and on it were these 12 gorgeous stones, probably the prettiest stones that that existed and probably really still do exist today. And, And you guessed it. Those stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They are representing the people of God and each stone had each tribe etched into it. And it rested over the heart of the high priest as he went in to do what? To represent those people before the Lord. So you're, you're standing there and you're watching Aaron come in. And, and he's not coming in as himself. He's coming in as you. That's the whole point of this. And his clothing is showing you that I am going in dressed as you. Okay, but this was the ephod. This was the breastplate. And then lastly, the headpiece, which was uh, this sort of turban that had the words on it, holy to the Lord. And this was the goal that he would go in there, hopefully perform the sacrifice well, atone and present you holy before the Lord. The ephod with the two onyx stones, 
on the shoulders, the breastplate with the 12 stones over his heart, and the hat or the um, turban, which read, Holy to the Lord. What's the point? Representation. We can't say it enough. We can't say it enough. But more than that, visibly speaking, the clothing of the high priest functioned to bear the weight of Israel on the priest's shoulders. This is how atonement was made by the priest representing someone or people before God. British scholar, excuse me, Alec Moyer puts it so well. He says this, he, the high priest, was known before the Lord, not by his name, but by their names. And God gave this wonderful clothing uh, and ceremonial representation so that you could see this happening. You could see the high priest going in before his people to represent them. In other words, the priest clo- with this clothing, the priest became them, as we've been saying. And he took it on himself. This was the first thing. This is the clothing. This is the type of representation that Israel got from its high, high priest. And as we stop here in Hebrews, this is the type of rep- representation that you and I need as well. We need someone to clothe themselves in who we are, in our sins, and be given new and clean clothes, if you will, if you will at someone else's expense. So that we could be a part, what, of God's family again. That's what this is all about. I, I want to pause here for just a second and just say this. Too often we say the words that to, to be a Christian in Christianity is to believe in God so that you can go to heaven someday. And there's some truth to that, but it misses so much of what this is about in the first place. It's not just about going to some place someday. It's about actually being in fellowship with God himself for eternity. And that doesn't begin once we go and be with him someday. It actually starts now. That, that being a part of his family, what we're doing here actually this Sunday morning is just that. Being a part of God himself. It starts here and it starts now. And so this is part of what, what, is, what is happening now uh, as the priest is representing his people in this clothing. We need someone who can represent us and make us holy into the Lord. So how is this done? How did the priest give the people clean clothes as it were? How does this present, how does he present his people holy to the Lord? And this gets to the second thing, the cleansing uh, that, that he does. So as he shows up, representing the people in his clothes, he then moves into the temple. And for the temple, uh, you've you just got to think about two rooms. There's a tent and then the, and there's a room inside this tent. And the first room is called the tent of meeting. And the second room is called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided and where uh, the, the Ten Commandments were in. And uh, God actually lived in a pillar of cloud above this Ark. And so the, the Aaron, we're going to talk about Aaron as the high priest, would walk up and he would go into the tent of meeting and he would have with him two things. He would have a vessel of blood here and he would have a goat here. And he would walk into that first room and he would begin the process of atoning for the sins of himself first. And what he did to do this, which I think is fascinating, is he began to light incense. And in lighting incense, I'm always confused at what this is, what this is about, but, but this is, this, I think this is incredible. The incense created this cloud and he, he couldn't go into the, the, the Holy of Holies where God resided until the cloud was thick enough to shield him from the glory of God. 
Dr. J. Scholar puts it this way, that the incense cloud protected him from death by shielding him from exposure to the Lord's glory. And I think this is important because you and I don't get the weightiness of this. We sit in our cars, we sit in the drive-thru at McDonald's, we sit in here and we ask forgiveness for sins and we drive on eating our fries, watching basketball, whatever we're doing that day. We don't get the weight of what it means to have our sin come before the Lord. This ceremony did this. At any given moment, the high priest could just be, could just drop dead because of the glory of God. And so these steps and these things that we see throughout the Bible that often don't make sense to us, don't make sense to us because we don't get the gravity. We don't get the depths of our separation from God. But I love how the ceremony shows us these things, okay? So as the high priest would go in there, as the cloud would, would, would sort of protect him from the glory of God, he would then sprinkle that blood that he brought with a vessel over the ark or the atonement cover. What is the atonement cover? The atonement cover is the lid to the ark. It is, um, it is actually what shielded uh, the sinful priest and the people from God's kingly rule, the Ten Commandments. And this is interesting, as we'll talk later, why Melchizedek is being brought up. Because we also have to deal with a king here, too. But Jesus satisfies both of those things. That's for another time down the road. But he comes in, and he sprinkles that cover. And that cover, y'all remember Indiana Jones? And, like, right? Uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, Indiana Jones. um, And uh, the ark. Uh, the cover goes off and the, the Holy Spirit goes out and it just melts all the Nazis. That cover, right? That, this is the same one. It's the same one. This is what he's doing. So he, he goes in there and he atones for, for himself. And then he, then he takes the goat. Um, and just to be clear, if he doesn't atone for his own sins first, this is so crucial, then he, can, he cannot make atonement for everybody else. Because he himself is sinful too. But then he takes the goat and he, and he holds the goat down. Right, And he cuts the goat's throat as the goat, goat bleeds out. And this sacrifice is where atonement is made for the sins of the people. Now, I wanted to leave this out, but just for the sake of, of, of the visual representation here, the high priest is, is brought into a, a component of, of worship that none of us are brought into, and that is the cost. As, as he brings this goat in, the best of the herd. And as he brings it down on the ground, as he stares into the goat's eyes and he cuts its throat and he feels the blood drain from the goat, he feels the stress of the animal, he feels all that is going on in this horrific moment, he looks into the eyes of that goat and he's got to ask, what is this for? Why does this have to happen? This is for you. This is how the priest is able to be gentle Because he knows that it's his sin that has caused this animal to lose its life. It's one thing to sacrifice a goat. It's it's another thing in the New Testament when that goat is replaced with Jesus. We've, We've got to have those pictures in mind. We've got to feel the weight of this. And so this this sacrifice, this first goat, was for the sins of the people. And if all went well... Then he would move from the inner room, the Holy of Holies, which is essentially, you know, visibly speaking, it's the heart. And then he would move, his, move outward from there, cleansing the rest of the people and 
uh, all that went into the Day of Atonement, okay? It's important for us to pause here for a moment and, and look at um, two things here uh, of what is really being forgiven when we talk about sins. I, sin today is a very abstract word. It's a very overused word. And, I, you know, I, I don't expect us to, I don't expect myself really to get to the depths of it, but I think we would agree that it's an abstract term. And um, what's so helpful about studying this uh, and, and all this is coming from Leviticus 16, which I'm sure you all read this morning before you got here, is that we actually learn about two types of sins that this goat is atoning for. And I think it's helpful for us to stop here and look at these for a second. The two types of sins are this. There's the, they're called the un- unintentional sins, or, and there's also the sins of rebellion. Okay, Why would, why would God put into his sacrificial system these two categories of sins? Well, I think we can figure it out. Unintentional sins was this, that the the goat was atoning for sins that you and I were not even aware of. That's the definition of unintentional sin. There's sins that you and I have come in here this morning having no idea that we have committed. And there's sins that you will go to your grave having no idea that you have committed those sins. That's the first type. The second type are sins of rebellion. This isn't just I'm 18 and I go and get a fake ID and do whatever. These are sins. The language is way, is way stronger than that. These are sins that, that actually are so abominable to God that the sacrificial system doesn't even have an, a, a, a recipe for atonement for them. And so you've got to picture somebody out there, wait, you know, go back to the tent, Somebody who is out there who has sinned in a, in a way that they know they cannot make atonement for, who is watching Aaron go into the tent of meeting and into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, knowing that once the goat's throat is slit, that not only those sins that are unintentional, that I have no idea that, are, that what I'm doing are being atoned for, but the sins that, that I really don't even get forgiveness for in the first place are actually being atoned for too. And so what is this saying? What is this picture Saying It's saying that the worst things that you could ever do and the things that you have no idea that you did are sins that are being cleansed for you. So powerful. And it's important to look at what this says about Israel and what this says about God as well. First, what it says about Israel is that they knew something we often fail to acknowledge. And that is our guilt runs far deeper than we will ever know. Indeed, we spend so much time blaming God and demanding he justify himself. Why did you do this? What did I do? It's not fair, right? It's your fault. You shouldn't have made this dinner. That's us. That's our hearts before the Lord. And because of this, we actually will never know just how separated we are from him. But that's also a grace of his. We won't know how separated we are from him that we must atone for sins that we know nothing about. So on this first one, let me ask you, do you see sin as being this big of a problem? I know there are some of us that just wade in the guilt of our sin. I get it. But do you recognize that it's far worse than one, two or three things that haunt you? It's actually things that you know nothing about. And that should haunt you more. (laughs) The second question I would ask about this is, do you feel that this is unfair? Do you feel like you should be tried for something you don't even know to ask forgiveness for? I think those are good questions to ask. I think those are good places to be. 
Maybe you talk about them at your small group social outing tonight. Plug. But this is what it would say about Israel. They knew something about their sin that we don't. But where I want to go immediately is what does this say about God? What does it say about a God who would actually create a way for sins that you knew nothing about and for sins that really shouldn't be atoned for? What would it say about him for him to create a way for that to happen? Now you're seeing Jesus in the right light. Right Now you're seeing the gospel open up here in full form. That, that this God would be so gracious and so merciful and so kind to do that. Why? So you can go to heaven someday. So that you could be a part of his family. So you come back and be with him. See, all of us are scared to death that no one will love us. I know, big, big, huge general statement. But it's true. We're scared that no one will love us if they just figure out who we truly are. And so what we do is we practice the discipline of self-atonement. Self-atonement, we either get really, 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 really busy doing stuff, feeling important, helping people, trying to do something to keep our minds off of the guilt that we feel about what we're not doing. So we get really busy. That's one way we self-atone. Or we get really, really busy telling ourselves how terrible we are. Self-atonement. That if I just beat myself enough, that'll do. Which is why the gospel in chapter 4 of Hebrews that we just came out of, for a lot of us, is rest. You, You can stop that now. You can stop self-atoning because of this great high priest that we have. Rest that can only be found in Christ. But that's, that's so hard. It's so hard. I'm not even pretending to say to you that this is something that we should all understand and know how to do. It's so hard. So what do we do? We keep self-atoning. I'm a self-atoner. Nice to meet you. And I self-atone because I'm scared to death that no one will love me if they just figure out who I truly am. But the irony of what Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 5 is telling me is that it is ourselves who truly do not know the depths of how bad we really are. We are held accountable for things we know nothing about. But God creates a way to remedy the problem. And And what that says about him is that he is gentle. Which you notice comes up in this text, and I'm running so late on time already. But gentle is such a word that needs to be applied and expounded upon. But the, the idea is this it's meekness, the Beatitudes. It's, it's seeing yourself as you truly are. And, and, and the reason that this high priest was chosen from among his people, who was weak as well, and that he could go in and atone for the sins of his people, but also be gentle, is because he knew the weight of his own sin too. And when you begin to enter into the weight of your own sin, and what it actually costs somebody to make you right, to make you clean, the response is gentleness towards those who do not know, or who are in a place, are in a place of struggle, or who, who are in a place of fill in the blank. That the mark of understanding the grace of God in our own lives is to look at him as the great uh, high priest who is gentle with us, that we might be gentle with other people. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I wish we could spend more time on it. We can't. Um, but 
coming back to, to what we've been talking about, what it means to say that Jesus is gentle is to say that you can trust him. And that's what it meant for Aaron. Aaron wasn't this sort of, you know, what we might call um, elitist uh, high priest. He just sort of sat in his library and read books all day. And then when it was time for him to go be with the people, he just kind of rushed in, did something and ran out. Like Aaron went and walked amongst his people. He got dirty with his people in the field. He knew his people. He shared stories with his people. He was one of them. He had to be. He had to be. Just as you have to be with your people as you represent Jesus to them. You have to know what their lives are like. You have to know what's going on in their lives. You have to know how to pray for them. He was with them. He knew what it was. And that allowed him to be gentle, allowed him to sympathize, allowed him to know what it was like to be broken in this way. And this is God's grace towards us. It lies, all this lies at the heart of one of the best gospel summaries that the gospel says you are far worse than you'll ever know, yet more loved than you ever dared to dream. And for the moment, as the high priest is cleansing the sins of his people with the blood of a goat, we get a picture of what Jesus was bleeding out for as well. The unintentional sins of our lives, but those are also the sins that we feel like we don't deserve forgiveness for. And what's the picture? Jesus' blood atones for everything. Everything. Again, this is what it means for Jesus to be a better high priest. He's going to do permanently what only Aaron could do temporarily. But there's one more step here, and we'll close with this. And that is that your sins don't, always have, don't only have to be cleansed, they have to be removed. Okay? Um, so I, I do a little running from time to time, nothing more than three miles, and I like to go in my neighborhood. And on this one particular day, I, I decided to go a different route and go down a different street. And I usually about uh, close to mile two and a half as I approach three. I mean, I'm kind of sucking wind. That's, what I'm, that's the kind of runner I am. Um, but it's, you know, I enjoy it still. And I make this turn to head home on this one route. And I realize that as I make this turn and, I, and I'm probably halfway down the street, I get to this driveway. There's this. There was this bug. Um, I get this huge whiff of garbage. And I'm, you know, I got, I'm breathing pretty hard here because I'm just, I'm not a good runner. And I look and I notice that the, this family's garbage is still out and it's been sitting there for at least a day, but it's probably a week old because it's been there since last week. And, oh man, what a bad time, you know, at the run to, to hit the street and to grab this, you know, get in the way of this trash can. And so I, I get by it and I, I think everything's fine, but what's really happening is that for the rest of the street, there's nothing but trash cans lined up because for whatever reason, the waste management uh, of Fort Worth had was was late and didn't get to pick it up the day before, so they're going to come back later today and get it. I don't know, but now here I am in this unfortunate situation, sucking wind. But all I have to breathe in is this trash and just this awful. Um, I almost called Ada to have her come pick me up, but um, what's the point? It's one thing to cleanse your house of garbage, right? It, it's another thing to have it removed. Those are two different things. And if, if the garbage is not removed, there's no point in cleansing your house of it. And the same is true for our sin. <laughs> to make atonement for it, to be cleansed of it, it has to be removed as what? As far as the east is from the west. It cannot even be in the proximity. It can't even be in the same zip code. It has to be removed in order for what? For God to draw near. In order for him to come close and to be with us. And this is what the high priest did. He actually removed the sins of the people with a second goat. 
And you've got to see the picture here. You've got to put yourself back in the people as they watched Aaron come out of the tent, blood all over the ephod that represented the cleansing of their sin from the one goat. And he would take the second goat and he would put his hand on the goat's head and he would pray over that goat. And he would pray the sins of the people over that goat. And you're watching this. You're thinking about all the things that you've done. And you're wondering if the promises are still true. And he prays over this goat. <clears throat> but he doesn't, he doesn't kill it. He lets it go. And there it goes. Running off. Away. Into a cut off land. Visualize that for me. Picture that. You need to see that this morning. <clears throat> that that the, the blood of Jesus doesn't just atone for your sin. It doesn't just cleanse you of it. It removes you of it. It gets it out of here. Just as this goat, this scapegoat, if you will, is sent off into the cutoff land, bearing your sin as well. Can you think about the celebration? Hebrews knew how to celebrate. Then you know, the celebration that happened that night, right? This is how the high priest would remove the sin of the people. This is the clothing, the cleansing, and the removal. And this is what the high priest would do as he represented you. And what Jesus has come to tell you this morning is that this is ultimately what he has done for you. He has clothed you. He has represented you. He has cleansed you. And he has removed your sin. Do you dare ask Jesus this morning? Do you dare look upon him this morning and see him wearing the ephod and breastplate as the high priest did? Except it doesn't read the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you dare look at it and see your own name? Do I dare look at it and see Ryan Douglas Moore right there as he atones for my sin? Do you see the fullness of your sin? It's depth, it's wickedness, it's destruction, it's separation. Yet at the same time, do you see the gentleness of God and his grace to cleanse you of it? Not at the cost of a goat, but at himself. Do you see the removal? How Jesus became the true scapegoat for us. The one who would be abandoned into the land cut off from the love of the Father for us. The one who would take our sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. So that you could have peace with God. So that this rebellion would end and that you could be a part of the family. Do you see these things that Jesus has come to do for you as your great high priest? And I, I pray that as we go throughout the rest of the study. That as we hear the words high priest. That we would see the ephod. That we would see the goat. Both the first one but also the second one. The one running off to remove your sin from this land. This great high priest who was known before the Lord not by his name but by yours. So that you might get his good name. That's who our high priest is. And the only question that we have this morning is do you want to be a part of this family? Or shall we just keep on going self-atoning? Do we want to be a part of this family or shall we continue to self-atone? What has the power to stop this is the perfect love of Jesus. It is mom and dad 
in the kitchen saying, why would you want, why would you not want to be a part and to be in the presence of this great love for you? Come and sit down and eat with me. This is the invitation of Jesus this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what at first is just an unrelatable ceremony and situation to us. Um, But as we look at it, um, it so clearly shows us your love for us. It so clearly shows us who Jesus is. Um, I pray that as we think about what it means for you to be our high priest, what, what, what you are actually doing for us, that all that that would do would cause us to disarm, to be gentle, but to receive the love that you have given us through your own actions. Uh, would that change us as a church? Would that change us as a city? Would that change us as a people? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.